welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Well, today we're back on the who was responsible for 9-11 and should be held accountable beat. And this time I have two really amazing guests. And I say that because I, I just read their monumental book. Uh, they conducted a 10-year investigation which resulted in a book called The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, The Crimes of the War on Terror. Writer John Duffy uh, produced the acclaimed documentary 9-11 Press for Truth, featuring the quest of a group of widows known as the Jersey Girls, who, uh, as they look for answers about why their husbands died, were met with obfuscation, dishonesty, and great disappointment from government officials. Duffy also produced the podcast Investing CIA, Investigating CIA Spy Richard Blee, who figures quite prominently in this story. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's uh, been following this 9-11 story and digging up very interesting stuff. His co-writer, Ray Novoselsky has worked on many acclaimed documentaries, um, many, some of which have won uh, Academy Awards. He was the director for Press for Truth. So I don't see Ray, but I do see you, John. So welcome. Yeah. Hi, but I don't know. I don't I don't know where Ray is. They there was some confusion with the Zoom links, so I don't know if he got the updated Zoom link. I I, I sent it to him, so we'll you know we'll see what happens. We'll roll with that. But yeah, we'll we'll keep rolling. So this book, the details in this book, I, I mean, I lit my hair on fire, and um, I want to start. You you obviously divided into pre nine uh, eleven and post nine eleven. Pre 9-11 is, you know, what they missed and who did what. And post 9-11 is the big CYA <laughs> and, and the mm -hmm. crimes associated with that. So the crux of what happened, I feel, based on your book, happened at Alex Station. That's really the the malfeasance that led to, it seems, everything else. I mean, there were other issues, but could you talk about what Alex Station was and who the players were and what happened? Yeah, it's kind of complex, but Alex Station is a station at the CIA. So when you people talk about the CIA, and you, it, the CIA is divided into sort of two halves, um, but there are, you know, analysts who stay in Langley, and then there's operatives and stuff who go overseas, you know, the quote-unquote spies. And you know, the CIA has stations in capital cities around the world, um, you know, and you, you got spies who get diplomatic cover through various cover stories or whatever, pretending to be this or that, working for the State Department or doing whatever. But Alex Station was focused primarily uh, on Osama bin Laden. So it's referred to as the bin Laden unit. It's founded by a man named Mike Scheuer. And it was actually in uh, Virginia. It was in the CIA headquarters at Langley. So it was operating like a station you'd have in a foreign country, but it was here in the United States because, of course, Osama bin Laden is not a foreign country. So uh, it was stationed there. It was a small office at first, um, you know, prior to 9-11. Mike Shore staffed it up. He selected a, a woman named uh, Alfreda Bukowski, who was a uh, an expert in, like, the Cold War in, in Soviet Russia, and he brought her in, and then together they staffed the office up primarily with young women, younger people in the CIA, newer people, because uh, Osama bin Laden wasn't perceived as like the threat that maybe he, he should have been. So it wasn't like the hot station to work at when it was founded. And so they got a lot of newer people to work there. Of course, after 9-11, it was the hot station. Um, but Mike Shore is kind of like a, an interesting character. He's very... Uh, He's very bombastic in a lot of ways, and he was considered kind of out there by the rest of the CIA, and they actually referred to his unit as, um, because it was him, this guy, the only other man at the time, I think, was Tom Wilshire working there, and they, they called it the Manson family, because here's this sort of crazy, wild-eyed guy with all these young ladies following him around, so they referred to them as the, and, you know, they were all very... With um, very little 
experience, right? I mean, these yes, guys, yeah, yes. not not a lot of not a lot of operative experience, right? A lot of right. analyst experience, right? Um, so anyway, this is this is Alex Station. It's set up. They're they're watching Bin Laden, and of course, they're really um, they're part of the counter terror uh, center. They're very gung ho about what they're doing, but the rest of the CIA, you know, isn't really caring much, and. Uh, the, it all starts getting really nutty around the time of the millennium. So this is past the point where we've seen, uh, you know, we've obviously had the 93 attack on the World Trade Center. We've had the, the embassy bombings in Africa. And coming into the millennium, there's this all this chatter about a terrorist threat on the quote unquote homeland, you know, a, a domestic threat here in the United States. So and this is taken very seriously, actually. And it, I mean, updates are going all the way to the president. Um, and what ends up happening is they, through spying, uh, through digital spying, there is a house in Yemen, in Sana'a, Yemen, where a man named Ahada lives. And this is a top lieutenant of bin Laden's. And they use this house in Yemen as a communications hub because you can't just call Afghanistan whenever you want. You know, it's very hard to communicate with bin Laden hiding there in Afghanistan. So they use this house uh, as like a switchboard. People call in, call out. Well, anyway, um, by listening digitally to this house, uh, they find out that there's going to be this meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, a, a terror summit where all these like bigwigs of Al Qaeda terrorism are going to get together and discuss their plans. So the CIA learns this and they realize they must monitor what's happening, who's going in, who's going out. They get the assistance of various other intelligence agencies around the world, including the Malaysian special branch, who's outside the condominium complex where this is happening, filming, uh, you know, taking video, people going in and out, taking photographs. And they're going around like watching as people leave the house, going to internet cafes, getting those computer hard drives, watching them go to pay phones, getting the phone records from those pay phones. And they come to realize that some of the attendees, uh, specifically Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Al-Hazmi, um, are coming to the United States. Oh, they, they find out specifically uh, Khalid Al-Maidar has a multiple entry visa for the United States. And all this is communicated back and forth to Alex Station in real time. And then something really bizarre happens, which is right after the meeting ends, supposedly all this concern for these people in this meeting just kind of goes poof up in the air. They're like, ah, when the guys left the condo, we just, we lost them. We didn't know where they went, but where two of them went was to Los Angeles. Um, and that's really where the the mystery sort of begins. Okay, go did ahead, you, Ray. Did you just ask Duffy to introduce himself? No, he sorry, didn't. I was <laughs> no. two minutes late there. Don't worry, I I did the introductions <laughs> for both of you. Sorry but, about that. You know, nice to join you. Knows who you are. Great to have you on. Well, okay, so that's the background. The essentially had a rep there at Alex station, right? Because, you know, CIA is not supposed to operate in the United States and the FBI does operate in the United States. So uh, Mark Rossini was there and I had Mark on this show uh, before. And of course he's, he's a really a haunted man. And he's I, super pissed about what happened at Alex station. Okay. And um, he, I want you to, either one of you, which whoever wants to explain, obviously a memo was written, but after, after they lost, after they lost them in Malaysia, didn't, didn't someone go to Thailand and the Thais said, hey, we'll, we'll uh, track them down for you. And the CIA said, no, 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 don't track them down. Do you remember, am I, I mean, I read your book, but isn't that what happened? And then, and then a memo was written up, the CIA memo was written up about these two guys having the visas to go to the United States. Am I correct so far? Am I wrong in anything I'm saying here? Well, there was an order of back and forth. I, I know that, um, so after the three days that the men spent at what was known to be this Al-Qaeda planning meeting with high-level known terrorists that they recognized, uh, when they went to leave the country, um, Midhar and Hazmi, I, I know that, that essentially there was a message sent that they were to be met by the local CIA station folks in Bangkok when they arrived. And then this, the cover story has always been that the, 
that essentially they arrived and the guys missed them. I don't know if they slept in. I think the message yeah. on a Sunday, it was like, they oh, we them. don't work on Sunday. Yeah. Um, but they knew they'd already, they had been monitoring the, um, what is it? The payphone outside of the condominium complex. So they, they could tell from records that they'd been calling a hotel in Bangkok. So even if they lost them at the, at the airport, they should just drive over and meet them at the hotel, which is likely what they did. Let's, I mean, they likely didn't lose them at the airport to begin with. But uh, I believe what happened was that the message came in. It's been a while. I know we wrote the book, but this stuff, uh, I, I, I know, I know. I have the same problem with my book. <laughs> but the, uh, I think a message came into CIA station and it's like all of a sudden everyone turning uh, at the bin Laden units, turning on their computer around the same time uh, after the fact, a couple years later, when the inspector general went to look, they were able to find like who read the messages in what order on that day. And it's like Tom Wilshire, the deputy chief read it like almost first thing. Then like Mark Rossini's partner, Doug Miller comes in and reads it. And the point is there's these multiple messages at, at some point talking about, uh, how there's efforts to find them again, and then how uh, they've come to Los Angeles in mid-January of 2000. Now, you never, you don't mention in your book who issued the visas to them. Do you know? I believe, if I remember correctly, they were issued in the, at the Saudi consulate. Was that correct in Jeddah? Oh, that was, so that was uh, Mike, Mike Springman's uh, operation yeah. where he was being pressured by uh, CIA people in there to give these visas to people that he was afraid to give visas to. I yeah, had I him on the show too. Yeah. Well, and there was, there was always an inference because information's come out since that some of those visas that the Saudis, um, uh, they would put some, some version of a tracker some way in the visa where if they thought someone was likely Al Qaeda, they could actually keep track of them too. So that's yet another way that if the Saudis were communicating with CIA, that, that should have been fairly easy to, I mean, it, when you start to, when you start to look at all the evidence, it goes from like, how could we have known, which was the stated case in the first year after 9-11 to like, here are the 20 ways we should have and probably did know. It becomes very hard to explain away, you know? Now, what really angers Mark Rossini is when Doug Miller, his FBI colleague, wants to write a memo to the FBI, because now, again, the FBI handles the US side of things. He wants to send a memo uh, to the, uh, you know, to the states about these guys with their visas and what happens. Either one. So, yeah, so, at, so there had already been a program to facilitate information sharing where people from the CIA would work at the FBI, people at the FBI would work at the CIA. And Mark Rossini was someone who worked out of New York's uh, counterterror uh, department, I-49, and he'd been uh, handpicked to go work at Alex Station uh, by, um, by his mentor. And so he, anyway, so he's one of several FBI agents stationed at CIA's Bin Laden right, unit. Right, right. all these cable, when all this cable traffic's coming in, you know, this other FBI agent working there, Doug Miller, is like, we should probably send this over to Counterterror HQ in New York, and uh, and they he tries to makes like a draft memo, but he's basically told digitally that we can track all this that like uh, please hold off uh, for now, and it says per Tom Wilshire. So basically, basically as if the deputy director of validation saying I don't tell FBI HQ this just yet. Just give us a second, and then who, nothing who happens. Sent never that who sent that email to him per Tom Wilshire? Was that was that the uh, Michael? What what's her name? That's the, that's the Michael, Michael Ann Casey. Yeah. So his direct report. Who okay. Worked, who worked for Alfreda Bukowski? Okay. Yeah. Between okay. her and yeah. Wilshire. So but they then, they tell him don't send it. Yeah, and then but then pretty much almost immediately it's like like again my my brain's a little fuzzy this morning but I think it's that day another internal cable goes out to everyone there uh, at CIA, like this information has been shared with the FBI. But uh, just but so Doug, you, yeah. And that's they, Michael Ann, the same one who placed the note that said, please hold off on that same day sends like a CIA counter terror wide message. 
right, that says what Duffy said, that like, just so you know, we informed the FBI. This way, I mean, what it looks like is that if anyone was going to get a hair up their ass at CIA to inform the FBI on their own, they're under the impression it's already been passed, so don't even bother. But they just yeah, so there seems to be lied. They lied about this. Yes, no. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's pretty clear, right, John? I mean, she's we know she's got the knowledge that it wasn't passed, and then she sends the message that says that it was. That seems to be a lie. Now let's be clear. Yeah. Memo was January. It was January two thousand that he wanted mm -hmm. to send it. So we're now yes nine months before nine eleven. He wants to send it on January in January two thousand. And well, a year, no, it's, it's like a year and nine months. It's 2000, oh. not 2001. No, no, yeah. I uh, yeah, January 2000. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, that's right, a year and nine months. I'm sorry. 2001. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like a year yeah, and nine months. I feel like we're reinvestigating this all together as we're trying to remember the uh, story that's so, in the book. But. So, well, <laughs> uh, here's the thing that gets me. Okay, so now the FBI has no clue. So the FBI has no clue until all of a sudden these two guys that they were talking about are in the united states when in august of 2001 right it's august of it's august of 2001 that the fbi is officially alerted by the cia that these guys are in the country and so, they say yeah. you gotta find them never mind you know how we have this information never mind we're not sharing any information just go find them and their hair is on fire and they tell them to go find them. Well, and they don't even tell them to find them. In, they don't even tell them to use all the tools at their disposal to find them. Because what they're effectively doing is still in those last few weeks using the cover of the so-called wall that um, they, they don't that want. Janet Reno created that wall between yeah, the CIA that, and the FBI. So well, that, it's between, it's, it divides, it, it's a separation between like in, uh, and intelligence, uh, an intelligence uh, operation and a criminal operation within the FBI. So within the FBI itself, there are people who are like criminal agents and intelligence agents, and some are both, but it's like, supposedly they are with themselves not supposed to share information. Yeah, but, but anyway, this whole thing the interesting thing about this wall, I just want to say this, is that what it does is it covers all the the entire intelligence side from any kind of accountability in the courts okay whereas law on the law enforcement side you are accountable and you can be held accountable in the courts and i think i think that there's something very wrong about that and i think that's why the intelligence community is so out of control right now that's part part of why but anyway, I mean, that's interesting. I, I know the stated reason, right, was to try to make sure that that certain agencies regarding threats and other information uh, could would not have a barrier to being provided, you know, uh, from the intelligence services, because there'd be no fear about uh, essentially accidentally outing an undercover person in an open court for like when it get that information gets used for like criminal proceedings. You know, which has happened a few times. Um, well, that's the stated reason. Yeah. Well, that that reason cuts another way too, and that's the problem. I mean, an accidental outing of of a uh, an agent is. I mean, how uh, egregious is that compared to not being able to hold these people accountable for some of the massive and this, you know, just, re I mean, the whole torture program is a perfect example, you know? So that's a big problem, that wall. Of course, they, things have changed, but. You were um, talking about the, the August 2001, suddenly the FBI gets strung up to go search for these guys and it's too late. I mean, one part that we kind of covered in our book and uh, that we, we unearthed to a, to a degree was what happened that summer and how that message ended up getting to FBI. If I may, just very briefly. Yeah, go ahead. It's interesting because it continues to some of the characters. So we mentioned when they come in in January 2000, Tom Wilshire orders that that they hold off and not tell the FBI. Well, the really interesting thing that happens is around April or May of 2001, Tom gets a new position. 
which is that the CIA, uh, you know, bin Laden station sends him over to be their official emissary, their go-between at FBI headquarters in, in D.C. The same guy who withheld the information is sent to D.C. It, to, to facilitate information sharing officially. It's yeah. like kind of his position. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it seems, it seems, and it's hard to tell what goes on because Tom Wilshire's refused to speak with us or anyone else about this, but... Uh, but it looks like Tom kind of starts, like he's there, he's embedded in FBI, he's getting to be buddy buddies with these people over there, Michael Rollins and these other folks. And he starts to see that there's like a real need for them to know about the fact that there's two Al-Qaeda terrorists in the US and that, that their investigators are getting very close to finding it on their own anyway, can we just tell them? And he sends a series of emails over the summer that seems to appear to be almost in some ways begging his old office at CIA, can we let them know this? And he keeps getting ignored or that red, that famous redheaded CIA agent, Alfreda Bukowski, well, you know, there's evidence of emails behind Wilshire's back where she's fuming, like, I like Tom as much as anybody, but he needs to lay off of this past the FBI crap. Anyway, uh, the other thing Tom Wilshire does is at the top of his arrival at FBI, he assigns, so there's this FBI agent that's, uh, we've mentioned these other FBI agents that are stationed at CIA, right? Well, there's one that they're not really friendly with who seems to be much more like on board with the CIA team. And she's never interviewed either, even though she's risen to higher levels since. But her name is Maggie Gillespie. And oh, so he, right? And he, so Tom Wilshire assigns her this, like, hey, in your spare time, go back and look at, at those cables about that terrorist meeting in January 2000. Maybe there's something there about that. And the cables, of course, say they came to the US. We can see from the record that Tom reviewed those cables first, saw that information didn't tell her and just has her spinning her wheels over the summer looking at these same cables. So she finds in one of the cables, according to the little cover story in August, that, that they're inside the U.S. They have been for the year and nine months or the year and eight months. And supposedly she goes and tells Tom Wilshire and Wilshire acts shocked. And he's like, oh, we got to tell them right away. I think it's a cover story. Uh, I have no proof of this, but other than the fact that there, uh, according to the Inspector General's report, Tom Wilshire is one of two people to have printed a physical copy of that message. And I think what happened was he literally just like handed it to her because there's no record of her having ever accessed the digital copy of the message that said that they came to the United States, the, the, the terrorists. So I, I, there's a mystery there. I think Tom, Tom Wilshire got a conscience at the last minute and handed her a physical copy and said, report this to the New York office of the FBI. You know, okay, so I just want to look at this. First, you've got Michael Springman over there in Jeddah, who's giving visas to all these terrorists, okay? And uh, against his will, pressured by the CIA. Then you get to Alex Station. CIA doesn't want to share this information about these guys being in the US, even though the CIA can't do anything about them being in the US. Um, the FBI has to do that, doesn't share that. Okay, so now Springman has said this, you mentioned it in your book, um, that apparently the, the idea, and Clark said it also, this famous interview that you did with Clark, I believe he said that they think that what happened here was that these guys were being led into the United States uh, so that they could be recruited by the CIA. And I have to tell you, I'm an investigative reporter. You guys are investigative reporters. Are you buying this? I mean, if you look at 9-11 and all the planning that had to go into it, and particularly planning in the United States, am I going to be buying that the CIA is on top of these guys trying to recruit them? I can't buy it. I just can't buy it. I mean, I mean, I don't know if any of us could say for certain, but I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely at least plausible. So in, in the sense that they see- Why like, can't they recruit them where they are? Um, I, I guess just because it's more of a controlled circumstance over here. Um, and what? because maybe they'd be, they'd be oh yeah, way oh. less off their guard. You got, you got guys who are by them effectively by themselves. They're the only people they're surrounded by are other people from e like either the local, uh, Muslim community or people from, uh, 
who are basically Saudi agents over here in the United States, they're more isolated. I mean, getting to people who are like in a camp in Afghanistan is going to be a, a much, much harder. Now, like n no one could say for certain, yes, no. But I mean, when you look at the evidence of everything that follows on after, it does very much look like that there is uh, an effort to be, uh, can, I don't know if like uh, operating these guys, but you, you can see where they're going and talking to potential Saudi uh, uh, Saudi agents at the consulate in, in LA. And you could see the, the Saudi agents that they're, they're working with in, in San Diego who are putting them up in different places. Like, I think it's at least plausible that if this was going to happen, like if these people were trying to come here and, and the CIA sees this, the CIA, it's more of like a greed thing on their okay. part going like oh they're gonna be see the here. credulity on your face here's here's <laughs> the other reason why i don't buy it abu zabeda i abu zabeda to me is the one of the more shocking aspects of this thing i don't know who wants to start but talk about abu zabeda i mean you or me you can start when we get to the torture stuff. I'm happy to jump in. I'm actually a little foggy on the beginnings of Abu. Abu Zubaydah is a very interesting guy because there's possibly even different Abu Zubaydahs. It's sort of a generic catch-all name. Uh, Kiriaku wrote a great book uh, about Abu Zubaydah that people can read. Um, but And Kiriaku was involved in the capture of this Abu Zubaydah. Um, but basically he was called like like the, the like a number two number three guy in al-qaeda i mean he was really hyped up to be something that turns out he wasn't uh and he was it turns out he had very low level. first of all kiriaku would not have grabbed him if he didn't hadn't you know physically id'd him and had some kind of information attached and, to that face and they snatch him up in pakistan and he's 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 effectively like renditioned. He's tortured. He's still in Guantanamo now. Um, but like they tried to uh, associate a lot of activity with him that and and foreknowledge with him that turns out he just didn't have. And then yeah, for, I don't know if Ray, you want to go into the A B test uh, torturing of Abu Zabida and what that had to do with Ali Sufan. Well, I'm I'm real into. I'll tell you what I'm interested in before we get. I know yeah. he was tortured to within an inch of his life. Was the information that he did give up? and uh, the telephone numbers and who they were connected to. Yeah. So could you talk about that? Well, it was, it, yeah, I, uh, well, look, that, so that comes from a single journalist report. I've never seen a second on that and I cannot place where it goes in the chronology. But according to that report, before he was tortured or anything, he apparently wakes up and, and they've, they've created something that's made to, to give him the impression that he's now uh, in the hands of Saudi intelligence. And they, and apparently the CIA thinks this is gonna scare him, uh, but instead he reacts by getting very cocky and handing them a couple of phone numbers and saying, trust me, call these guys, like they'll take care of me. They're gonna, you know, they, you don't wanna mess with me. Here's, the, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. And right. so when they check those numbers, these are two Saudi princes one of which is living in, in Louisville and was sort of famous for having uh, uh, been involved in horse racing here in, in the US. But um, I mean, the number of times that you see different like high level Saudi princes either sending money to someone who's handling the hijackers, you know, or something like Abu Zubaydah handing over those numbers in that way, or them finding out that somebody who's like handle, uh, good friends with a hijacker happens to be working as a bodyguard at the Saudi embassy. I mean, it, it comes up over and over and over well, until you can't in, ignore it. You in know? your book, in your yeah. book, you said that he was given some kind of truth serum. Okay. And um, he said to call Prince Ahmad, the Saudi King's nephew. And he said that back in 1991, I'm, I'm reading from my notes, but a personal meeting was arranged, this is 1991, personal meeting arranged between bin Laden and Saudi intelligence, chief, Saudi intelligence chief, Prince Turkey, who resigns, by the way, right before 9-11, as a result of a bin Laden agreement with, with uh, the royal family's government. Many money and other assistance is passed from Saudi government 
to terrorist operatives using intermediaries like Prince Ahmad. He also said that uh, there was a relationship blessed by the Saudi government between the Saudis and the pro-Islamist elements of ISI, that's Pakistani intelligence, and Al-Qaeda, okay? And he said a deal was made um, with Pakistani military officer Mashaf Ali Mir in 1996. And he said that Mir and Prince Ahmed of Saudi Arabia were told beforehand that the US would be attacked on 9-11. And then the next thing you know, Tenet, you know, Tenet runs down, this is uh, <laughs> right before 9-11, right? He runs down to talk to, uh, he runs down to talk to George Bush uh, at Crawford Ranch, he's That's vacationing right. at the time, That's to right. talk about Abu Zubaydah and this information. Okay. Yeah, right. Well, we, and I guess he's never uh, been specific about what, yeah, what, what they went into. But of course, we know that he lied when he was before um, the 9-11 commission, uh, when they had him, like where they were grilling him, he claimed he hadn't talked to the president in, in the entire month of August. Oh, he fact, lied. He made that trip. He yeah. lied. He actually talked to them twice. I and by the way, that's just that's not just our opinion that he lied. When we interviewed Tom Kane in his office, the head of the 9-11 Commission, the former New Jersey governor, he said very explicitly he felt there was no way that that was uh, that was just an accidental slip. That was that was a deliberate lie. Well, and then all of a sudden, all of these people that Abu Zubaydah mentions, you know, Prince Sultan and Prince Ahmed uh, and Prince Fahd, they all die. They all die these weird deaths. One of them dies by thirst. The other one dies in a single car accident. And the other one, uh, well, he dies of a heart attack, but he's like a young guy. So I, and another thing, when I saw this whole Abu Zubaydah business, I keep saying to myself, why don't investigators look at the connections between the Bush family and the Saudis more closely. Because this guy's the president of the United States when this happens and it's a Saudi crew and the Saudi royal government is involved. He's like this with Prince Bandar, Mr. Saudi intelligence at the time. So how could, what, what is not, what's missing here? What am I missing here? Well, you may be interested to know something we didn't put in the book and discovered afterwards, which is that apparently there was a 10 year long investigation by the FBI that they never announced into this with a, with a, a small set of investigators at FBI who uh, I guess it seems to us based on information we've been passed became persuaded by the evidence that they found traveling around the world investigating this exact subject whether the Saudis were, were behind 9-11. And they became convinced there was a lot to this. And, and, were, and uh, I think that investigation shut down in 2016 and they've continued to be very frustrated and um, at least to the extent that they can legally, you know, are, are offering at least some amount of consultation or, or assistance to the ongoing suit by the 9-11 families against the Saudis. But of course they're barred from, you know, many things that they no, no doubt discovered. So, I mean, you've got... Bob Graham, a U.S. senator who became so convinced he spent the rest of his career in post-retirement talking about this exact issue. You've got a number of investigators for, that were part of the congressional thing that moved over to the 9-11 Commission, like Michael uh, Jacobson, who we've talked with, who also were very disturbed by all of this and felt there was something to it. And there was enough there that the FBI runs a 10-year investigation. They keep going until 2016 looking at this. There's something here. This is not just kooks you know, thinking there's something when there's not, you know. Well, what have they found out so far? One would like to know, how about a little interim report? You know, and the other thing is, is I, I don't understand, again, when everybody talks about this, they always talk about the Saudi royal family's involvement. And they, they sort of, like, it's almost like in this picture, they crop out the Bush family, uh, in, you know, connection to the Saudi royal family. I mean, after 9-11, not too shortly after that, right? Uh, Bush met with Bush and Cheney and everybody else. 
met with this entourage of Saudi royals and, and with their entourage. And in the entourage was one guy who was wanted by the FBI and another guy who was on the terror watch list. And so those guys are, you know, oh, hi there. <laughs> well, that's My son, Pablo. He's adorable. <laughs> what, you know, you. so those two guys are, are shunted aside. And to the and and as they're being watched, as they're moving around, because they're shunted aside, they're not part of the meeting. One of them goes and gives a big payment to the guy who receives a couple of the uh, the hijackers in uh, in San Diego. Yeah, Bayumi, I mean, right? Yeah, Bayumi. And apparently, Bayumi is possibly still being trailed by a CIA agent, even up to that point, like what, a year after 9 11, because I believe the CIA are the ones who report on that pay, payment being received by him in Texas. Um, it's incredible. It really is. I, well, I can't believe the mainstream media has not given this it's, story. But it's not just, the, you know what? Before the mainstream media is going to, you know, have the cojones to deal with this people like richard clark and rossini the only thing rossini will say is the house always wins it's about the oil and i'm like dude the house who's the house because the house now has has is is the is the culprit and perpetrator of massive war crimes all kinds of crimes we need to know who this house is. You work for the house. You know, the empire. I get exact I get frustrated with these guys who want to protect their agencies. I understand yeah. that. That's the hand that fed them. But this cropping, this continuous cropping out of the top levels, particularly when you know, the Bush family had had financial connections to the Bin Ladens way back. You know, they had, they, they are connect, super connected and still connected to the royal family to, to the point we're still seeing the connections to the royal family. They hacked up uh, Khashoggi and it's as if nothing, oh, well, we need this oil. And it's. And that's the weird thing too, right? Is like the, the guy at the top right now is supposed to be the, uh, you know, he's the conspiracy theorist in chief. He's the deep state hunter. Like you mentioned, like, oh, well, wouldn't it be great to get that report from uh, that the FBI concluded regarding like what they found with the Saudis? Well, uh, old dude's been in the office for four years now. You would think if this was someone's going to get that on out, he could he could order that. But I, I, I do think, it, you know, it's interesting because it's complicated, right? Like, um, like, you know, Duffy referred to Empire, but it's like Empire has these different divisions, too. I find it very fascinating, for instance, that a, a lot of uh, uh, Trump support within um the FBI has come from the New York office, like Rossini's old office. Um, there seems to be sort of a loyalty there. There's all these weird, interesting like divisions when you start analyzing the well, cooks and clubs in the government. You know, you know I, I just want to know what human beings, we can call it empire, we can call it this. I want to know what human beings, their names, who did what to allow this to happen, and then who benefited from it. And, and the things that happened after 9-11 are even worse. Um, and the other thing I want to segue to are all these reports. I don't think the American people realize how many reports, post 9-11 reports, were done. But I'm particularly interested in an NSA report by a guy named Bob. And by the way, just interrupting myself, I have to say that Tom Drake, you know, I didn't know the full story until... I read your book and that guy, that guy is a hero of he massive proportions. This guy, he's, a, he's has, a hero. He's a hero of the same level as Snowden, but, but, uh, but honestly came closer to the brink and has been far less recognized. And, and he is the real deal. You know, I had to, we had to meet with him in person on three different occasions because he didn't trust you know, cell phones for obvious reasons and other other communications. And um, now he, he he's he's a true believer. He believes in the country, the cause, the, the Constitution, the you know the republic. I think he's thing, bigger. You know? I think he's bigger than than Snowden, and I'll tell you why. Because he stayed here, and he bit that bullet, and he came through to the other side. He went through that. The reason Snowden That's left 
was because of what happened to Tom Drake. Snowden said he he absolutely looked at what happened to Tom Drake and was like, well, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna put this out there, like I know what's gonna happen to me. I watched what happened to Tom Drake, so let's I'm not talk, gonna. Like, let's talk about what Tom, Tom Drake did. Let's talk about what Tom Drake did. Go ahead. Who wants to? Uh, oh, take- sure. Uh, well, okay. So Tom so Tom had 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 various consulting positions with the NSA over the years by a weird you know, just coincidence, essentially, he had been hired on for a very high level position at SIGINT, which was kind of like, which was becoming the big powerhouse at NSA for obvious reasons. Signals intelligence. Yes, yes, email, phones, all the digital stuff that now dominates our lives, right? Uh, and at the time, of course, this is 2001, he was by coincidence, uh, he was starting on the Monday before 9-11, the day before 9-11 was when he was set to begin. So, you know, his second day at work, all this crap is going down. He's he's there with Maureen Baginski, the head of Signals Intelligence. As it's happening, um, they all get sent home. You know, uh, he, he, long story short is that in the weeks afterwards, he starts witnessing some things that, that are disturbing him. But he also is getting there because he's sort of considered an outsider and not part of that bureaucracy and establishment. There's a lot of people in signals intelligence who had seen things over the previous two years that related to what, uh, what was known and not known about the coming attack in Al Qaeda. Right. And they're very upset. Yeah. Cause NSA had all the information. They had the information that all these people had procured, uh, uh were coming into the country, had procured airline tickets and were coming into the country at the same time. Yeah. Had that yeah. Um, uh, Right. I mean, yes, amongst amongst other things. Apparently, they'd also managed through different monitorings and things to, to put together. And one can totally imagine in, in the, you know, the present day how somebody would design some kind of an algorithm, some kind of a program that would allow you to figure out relationships. Right. So apparently there's you were referring to something that we, we call in the book, the Tom Drake calls it the finest of NSA report. And it came out. Um, it was given to it, him by a guy named Bob, that's the only Bob, uh, right. yeah. And and Bob was part of this. So like there was like a dozen people at the time, if one can believe that, that were assigned to terrorism, and, and like a smaller group within that that were assigned to Bin Laden's group specifically. So there's a very small club of uh, of analysts, right? And they come up with this report that 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 what I think about a year before 9/11 managed to put together like all the key plotters and, and the entire Al Qaeda network, right? And and in order for a report like this to get shared, so this makes it to the level of Maureen Baginski, it, it makes it up to the deputies of the, the head of NSA at the time, General Michael Hayden, who went on to have this, you know, to be very involved in the monitoring of U.S. citizens and the commissioning of all that. But beforehand, they're given this report. And once again, it's it's just like at CIA, where they're supposed to be passing it to FBI, that whole, no, the, the, is this a no-go or should I remake it in some way kind of a thing. And they just... They, they had something that, that Tom Drake calls the chop the chop chain. And the chop chain was the small group that included Baginski. It included uh, uh, General Hayden's top deputies. And they were to decide what reports got passed to other parts of government and what stayed within NSA. And for reasons we don't know, they made the decision that that was not to leave NSA. And so it's very embarrassing after well, the attacks. Maureen Baginski, apparently, uh, Drake indicates, uh, helped was involved in putting the kibosh on getting that report out. And I have to say, I did not realize that Michael Hayden was who he was, if you know what I'm saying. Could you talk a little bit about him and what he did? I don't think there's a single person that may be more responsible other than maybe George Tenet for kind of the the way the war on terror the flavor, the fascist flavor that the war on terror took on. Actually, I, I guess that's debatable, right? George W. Bush, Dick Cheney. But the point is, the, the people in the White House were open to a certain kind of approach to the war on terror, right? We got to remember, there are a lot of ways this could have gone. I always try to imagine if Al Gore had been in. Not that, not that we're, I'm sure he would have been a dick in a different way, right? But like, I can't imagine some of this stuff happening. I could be wrong. Regardless, uh, Michael Hayden, yeah, General Michael Hayden is there at, at NSA as Cheney, Bush, 
and George Tenet, who not only oversees the CIA, but over at the time oversaw kind of all of the intelligence agencies of the U.S. government. That's the deal with the head of CIA at the time. And so that group of four people essentially unilaterally decided to begin the program that Tom Drake helped expose, that Ed Snowden helped expose, that many of us are very you know familiar with in terms of the illegal violation of the Fourth Amendment, mass monitoring of you know electronic communications in the domestic U.S. So that alone puts him in the right. The well, Hall yeah, of but fame. before he before that, he did something that I think implicates him in 9/11, which is um, Benny had come up with ThinThread, oh, I see. which was his amazing uh, software that could looked at patterns of communication and so on, but um, did not really spy on people and was encrypted unless and until a court said, yes, okay, you know, this, you can see, check this out. It was very cheap and it was very um, efficient. And, um, but Hayden put the kibosh on thin thread and basically, I mean, kind of aggressively sideline these people for this, well, I think it was called Trailblazer at the time, super expensive, giving out money to everybody uh, and going nowhere. It, it, it ended up never, ever being successful. And Tom, yeah. and Tom Drake was the one who brought ThinThread back online for a post-mortem investigation of, of what the NSA knew or didn't know and who. And it was through Thin Thread that Drake discovered, oh yeah, they had this information about all these people having tickets, uh, to, plane tickets at the same time. They had all this information. And when he found that out, I think that's when a big old target was put on his back, you know? There's a lot of that, by the way, where you can see the motivations behind some of these unconstitutional, illegal efforts, you know, post 9-11. It seems like people got brought into those partially because of how much fault they held for 9-11 to begin with. So the fact that he cancels thin thread and that can arguably be made to, to show that that, that that would have stopped 9-11 makes him more susceptible to being pushed into this idea that now he's got to do do the, the massive illegal version of it across well, the country, right? He and Tenet, he and Tenet are both in that boat. As a matter of fact, I remember one thing that really shocked me about Zebeda when all this information came out about Zebeda, uh, Tenet apparently runs down to, to, to George Bush and and uh, tells him and, and Bush tells him, well, you're not going to embarrass me on this, are you? And he goes, no, sir, Mr. President. So, I mean, and, and what happens? Both the NSA, OK, the CIA becomes a huge power center with Tenet at the top, even though the CIA, if you want to place responsibility on on anybody really for uh, in terms of the all the people involved the cia has got to be dragged into court for sure all these cia people and you know you name them right here in your book and the nsa tom hayden uh and and uh, some and the people who suppressed that information or who allowed for the suppression of that information especially when all the alarms were going off before 9-11. There were all kinds of all kinds of traffic about this. I think it's very telling that that George Tenet and Michael Hayden and some of these other top level folks at CIA have never just addressed this. It's not like they don't know. For one thing, we've sent letters. They've been, you know, uh, uh, but, but for another thing, I mean, we happen to know our book became kind of popular among certain counter terror agents of the FBI. I mean, this is this is something that's been discussed widely. And so the idea that they, they don't just go, look, we just want to straighten this out, okay? There's some bad information out there, so we just want to let you know, here's what happened, and here's where you're getting this wrong. Ray, they don't feel the need to even address it, Christine. Are you smoking <laughs> something here? They don't have to. Yeah. They, they are above the law. I mean, literally, literally, the CIA is above the law. Yeah, that's like their role, right? I mean, exactly. they're the ones who are supposed to be outside the law which doesn't make sense in a well outside the law but not inside this country outside the law um well right they were only supposed to be information gathering and now they well, have militias they have this they, 
<laughs> I mean, it's out of control. And it's it probably been out of control from the beginning. Sorry, Dump, I've been talking a lot. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. Well, I mean, one of the things that we tried to drive home, one of the sort of the more important, like, little details was that on September 4th, so exactly seven days before 9-11, there was a meeting of all the U.S. like intelligence, you know, counterterror principles, right? So this is like a, like a cabinet level meeting and, you know, George Tenet's sitting there and Richard Clark is sitting there. And this is a meeting that Richard Clark has been hammering his fists to get, right? Because he's the top counterterror guy for the White House, for, you know, for the country. He's been trying to get this, this big top-level meeting to happen so they could discuss the threats and, you know, and everything that they've been hearing. And George Tenet is sitting there, right, a week before 9-11. At this point, CIA is well aware that Khalid al-Midar and Al Hazmi are in the country. They are aware that Zacharias Musawi had been arrested in Minnesota. And they, um, and at this point, this like search for these, you know, these loose terrorists in the country has already begun. But at that meeting, George Tenet never mentions any of this. He does not, he doesn't say like, yeah, I know we got these terrorists we're trying to find who got here two years ago and we're really looking and we've told the FBI and no one can find him yet. No one says this at this, he doesn't say this at this cabinet level meeting. And like, and so what Richard Clark tells us is like, you know, when he finds out about this later, he's like, had he told me with a week to go that this was going on, he's like, we would have found those people. We would have, no you know, problem. we would have very easily, we would have no problem. He's like, they were using credit cards in their own name. He's like, we could have easily found them. So the fact that that doesn't get brought up is flabbergasting. And the fact that after the fact, this doesn't get pinned to tenant, like, Hey, why didn't you, why didn't you mention it then, bud? Like that, the fact that that question never gets asked of him is, uh, you know, and like you said, it's because they don't have to answer the questions. They are above the law. And I think we tried to make in our book, like I, the book is a case study and how people in the intelligence apparatus, uh, in the quote unquote deep state, whatever, how if you're playing for the team, even if you're playing dirty, doing things you shouldn't be doing, you're OK as long as you're doing it for the team. But people who go against the team, who are being honest, you know, Tom Drake, Mark Racine, people are being honest, who maybe break some of the rules because, like, shit's going wrong, they will get pounded into the dirt. You know, so, and this is going to happen over and over again. What you could see examples back in history, I'm, I'm sure it's happening now, it's going to happen in the future. Like, there is any attempt at accountability, all these apparatus that get set up for accountability, people in power can just sidestep a little to the left little to the right and just quote you know dance between the raindrops while you know because the law breaking that they're doing is for the benefit of the greater imperial project well i mean the bush administration of course made an art of creating laws uh, that allowed illegal behavior. I mean, the whole torture program, which we, we still have, we still have Guantanamo, Zabida, according to his lawyer, they have nothing on this guy. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, the uh, government admitted that they know he wasn't part of Al Qaeda, et cetera. So, but they can't let him, they, they can't let, they can't or won't, won't let him go. You know, meanwhile, all these black sites, you think these black sites have been closed down? So now it's like an industry. It's an industry. And it's a huge one. And and so we're at this. And that, to me, is why this book is so important, why it's so momentous, because you at least document the criminal behavior. I, I really, you, you can say, oh, well, this happened, it slipped through the cracks. Oh, well, there's so much slippage through the cracks and these, this person not saying, or this person say, the whole picture that comes into focus is exactly that there was something going on and it still has not, it's still, I, the, the whole business about recruiting people in the United States, letting them all into the United States so they could be recruited. That just, that strikes me as, I, I don't see that. I, I don't, I really don't. 
you know, no matter how much we learn, I sort of remain perpetually naive and we keep doing one more project on this because, because we're like, this will be the one that the media finally can't ignore and they're going to report on. And when we put this book out, by the way, uh, we, we corresponded with the New York Times uh, book editor and we corresponded with the BuzzFeed book editor. They were both going to take a look and supposedly give it a review. And it was completely ignored. To this moment, I think Jacobin, you, like a few other uh, you know, outlets have given us some small amount of attention. The other thing that the media does, though, is they'll they'll rip you off. So instead of like, they'll, they'll read your book and then they'll just like go to all the sources and put out their own thing on it. Right. And, and right. I welcome that. Go do it. No one has even done that. Go talk to Rossini, go talk to Clark, you know, ABC news, CNN, whoever, just go do it. You'll have Look, a killer special, but they won't do it. Ray, Ray I, mean, I am here to tell you as somebody who was in the mainstream media, there are certain subjects that, you don't touch. And if you do touch them, you touch them only with official sources. Okay. And then some of other, some other, uh, uh, other subjects, I, if the truth is 12 inches long, maybe you go in two inches, maybe on another story, you go five inches. You never go the full, because these people, they're, they're, you don't get the big bucks unless you're with the program. So people like yeah. you and John, don't stop expecting, and me, I've, I've, I am doing the heavy lifting, you're doing the heavy lifting, you're doing the heavy lifting, because they're not gonna do it. They're not gonna do it. So don't expect them to. As an, and, and you're right, they're gonna rip you off here and there to make it look like they, you know, they've worn out a little shoe leather and that they to, to give the veneer of of being journalists. But that's not what's going on. And, you know, it you the know sheer it. fact that we like it was 2009 when we interviewed Richard Clark at his office. And we sat on that interview for about two years because it was for a film and that film never ended up getting made. So we converted it into the, the Who is Rich Lee podcast. But before even releasing the podcast, uh, on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, we released a 10-minute short uh, edit of that Richard Clark interview. And you can find it on YouTube right now yep. still. Yep. And, um, and the fact that and we got such little like official media, despite like pushing and like making various media aware of it, it's like, here we have the former like counter-terror czar for the United States effectively accusing the former head of the CIA of running an illegal operation in the United States that resulted in 9-11. Now, maybe you don't believe the flip part of it, whatever, but even still, you got this high-level official making this accusation and laying out why he thinks that is the case based on what he saw in his job, what happened, and more importantly, what didn't happen. And it's just the very, it's like silence on it. And the few comments that are on it by like official media sources are effectively like, I guess Richard Clark went crazy instead of yeah. like, instead of going, yeah. hmm, maybe we should go to the people, like maybe we should talk to Richard Clark, see what else he has to say. And maybe we should talk to the people he's talking about. And like, and it, but they don't do that. They're like, Whoops, I guess that's I guess that that's, a, that's a don't go there subject. And I, you know, we're out of time. I just want to tell both of you bravo for this book. I think it's incredibly important. And, you know, keep on keeping on because there will be cracks that will eventually bring this wall down. I'm convinced. Can I just say, Christina, uh, when, when we were 23-year-old kids on our very first documentary shoot, uh, trucking through New York and begging media people to talk with us about, uh, well, we didn't even know where we were going with it exactly, but what was happening with the war on terror and the secrecy, you let us into your apartment there in New York in 2004 and gave us two hours of your time. And when we were threatened by the CIA in 2011 and shitting our pants at the time and, and wanted some attention from the media as cover, as help to us, you were the only one. Uh, working with Sabelle Edmonds, who came and reported on that. So I just want to thank you. Oh, thank you very pleasure. much. We do. We <laughs> thank do you for your work, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right.